this is Aspen Weight Media, and today we're bringing you the second part of our exciting new series, eight-part series, which is charting the birth of the English nation from somewhere around 450, when the Anglo-Saxons first came into, into England, really, uh, through to that momentous sea change that was the Battle of Hastings in 1066. My name is Paul Waite, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Viking himself, uh, it's almost like uh, Harold Hardrada never died and he, he was preserved for a thousand years to come back in the form that is Callum. Um, <laughs> so it's, I, th- I feel it's such an honour for Aspen Wake to have such a great Viking warrior uh, present on the show. So hello Callum, how are you today? I'm good thanks chap, how are you? I see you're not talking in your Viking voice, which is quite good because it can be a bit disconcerting when Callum goes into his full Norse thing. He's he's quite threatening when he took, when he goes berserker. I've been seen to run many many miles away from him. Uh, these days, it becomes <laughs> becomes a limp. Anyway, so without further ado, so we're in we're now in, back in, in in England in somewhere around the year six hundred. Um, just to set the scene from last week. Uh, Britain was obviously became a Romano-British kingdom, uh, very much uh, uh, absorbed into the culture of of the Romans. Uh, the Romans then uh, had had bigger things to worry about, so they basically upped and left um, Britain, and that that took place in about 410 AD uh, because they were being um, attacked by the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vandals, and, and various Germanic tribes. Uh, interestingly, uh, the Anglos and the Saxons and the Jutes, etc., had been prominent players as mercenaries in the Roman armies, particularly in Britain. And so the peoples had been used to travelling to the British Isles over quite a long period of time. Because of the dominance of uh, the Roman culture and also the um, inherently tribal nature of the British tribes prior to uh, the Romano conquest... Uh, when the Romans left, this left the island pretty vulnerable, I would say. Uh, and of course, uh, the North, the North European peoples—it's best to call them that—looked with cunning and fond eyes across the seas to the beautiful green countryside that is England. And and so, uh, in in over four fifty to six hundred, etc. Uh, the Anglos, Saxons, Jutes and Frisians really are the main peoples here. Um, they travelled over from the area that is now uh, Denmark, uh, Germany, Frisia, a uh, little bit of uh, Holland. Uh, and, 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 and initially um, probably were more sort of conquering type people coming over as war with war bands. Uh, and then as they became more established, uh, then they would bring their women and their children and the farmers would follow. And so we get to a point by by today where basically the Anglo-Saxon culture uh, is now dominant. Um, very interesting, as we as we discuss, very interesting thing in history because at no point does it seem, from the records we have, that they ever became anything like the dominant people. They were heavily outnumbered, even at their peak, by the indigenous people of the time. But uh, I suppose because there was there was no real. Um, solidity to the structure of uh, post-Roman British British people. Um, effectively, uh, the, the the Britons that stayed in England basically became Saxon. I mean, that's the only way they they basically became no different to uh, to the invader. And so, um, 
I think is is it uh, was England referred to as the heptarchy, Callum? I think that's right, isn't it? Do you know have you heard of that site that, that that phrase? Um, it does ring a bell, but to be honest, I'm not 100 percent sure on that one. I think heptarchy means seven kingdoms. So um, by the time we get into the seventh century, uh, we've basically got Kent, Sussex, Essex, um, Northumbria, Mercia, and uh, Wessex, uh, with uh, Cornwall referred to as the West Welsh. And then, interestingly, um, c- considering our our weight paternal line, Callum, um, Cumbria itself was was never actually part of that whole structure, and was was actually mm-hmm. more uh, aligned to Strathclyde, for instance, uh, and and and, mm-hmm. and, and, and probably was looking north more than south. Yeah. So, um, so as I say, we 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 get to a point where. Um, uh, England has become dominated by the invading uh, North German tribes, let's call them that. Um, so you've done a lot of work on uh, how these people sort of operated, their 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 structure of government, um, how they went yep. about their daily lives, the things they ate. So um, let's, 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 let's start off with, um, you know, what do these people look like? What did they do? What was their, what, how do they have fun? You know, what did they eat? These sort of things. Okay, so the general consensus is they were very tall people. On on the whole, they were fair-haired. Um, in terms of what they would carry around, they would have lots of long tunics, round shields, spears and swords were their favourite weapons, mm-hmm. um, helmets. Um, so just to sort of tie into everything nice and neatly. <laughs> so obviously when, when they first arrived on the scene, there were lots and lots of Roman towns mm-hmm. all over the place. And I, I do really think it's really interesting that they chose not to use these yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, but I think you, you can see why. I mean, the, these were very culturally advanced people, um, but it would uh, it would have been very, very hard for them to integrate themselves into the Roman towns. You've got to bear in mind that the Roman towns at the time wouldn't have been dissimilar to, or a Roman house, it wouldn't have been dissimilar to explaining a house of modern day. Mm. So Roman houses were made of brick or stone, um, they had tiled roofs. Mm-hmm. They even had glass in their windows and had underfloor heating. Yeah. So I mean, it's quite really. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, the Romans were amazing people. Yep. I mean, to, to hear that in modern day and to hear that this was over a thousand years ago is is really quite astonishing stuff. Yep. So, I think the Anglo-Saxons just didn't understand the Roman ways, um, and so the, the the towns, the villas, the streets, and the baths were often forgotten. They fell into ruin, co- mm-hmm. covered with weeds. Which in itself would have really seemed quite like um, mysterious and magical. A like hundred or two hundred years afterwards, to have been wandered through these places would have seemed really quite eerie. I imagine, and yeah. I know that there are some tales from Saxons and Vikings which um, explain some of um, the uh, the Roman towns, such as Bath, as as being uh, like ancient places yeah. um, built by giants. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I digress. Um, so the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, lived in small villages. They, they built lots of villages. Um, they built their houses out of uh, mainly wood um, with uh, roofs thatched with straw. Yep. Um, they really utilised the fact that at the time Britain was completely covered with forest. Yep. You know, so everything they everything they could they they made with wood. Really, um, they their their houses only had one room where everyone ate, slept, cooked, and entertained. Um, all of their houses were built facing the sun right. to uh, get as, as much as much heat and light as possible. Um, so they would have had a 
a small village with several houses. Um, the biggest house in the village would have been called the Hall, mm -hmm. which was the chief's house. And he would have lived there with all of his uh, warriors. Yeah. Um, the hall would have been long, wide, and smoky. Uh, they would have had a fire and a stone in the middle. Um, the window slits were called eye holes. On the walls, there would have been shields, antlers, um, you know, th things that they had they had won through conquest, and mm -hmm. you know, large beasts that they had slain. You know, if there was like a particularly large wolf or something, you know, they would have uh, put that up on, on its wall. Um, the the, the would have been quite dirty on the floor, I imagine. They often <laughs> they often would have kept their um, animals inside with them yeah. in um, the cold months. Definitely. Um, but the, on, on the whole, the, the, the villages were quite small. Um, they wouldn't have had more than a couple of hundred people living there at a time. Okay. And um, yeah, so um, you know, uh, did did these people often eat together? With you know, you see you see in sort of films and things like Last Kingdom and the Vikings you know, scenes of uh, the Great Hall and people congregating around. Is that more true, or did the average average uh, Anglo-Saxon person eat their their provisions in their own in their own little dwellings? Well, they, it's, it's definitely true to say that they loved having company um, and they loved having parties. Um, in fact, they have they have some great words for it, actually. Um, we can talk about that in a, in a bit. They had a, a word that they really liked um, that in Old English was comfiorum, um, and that meant house guest um, okay. or visitor. Um, come, the, the come part just means comer, so pretty straightforward. And um, fiorum sort of means like strangers' supplies. So this would have been like a, a common word that they would have used. Um, so, that, that, you know, they would have said, oh, you know, uh, we need to uh, arrange for the Comfjorn, and they would have had sort of uh, meat and and ale and and uh, and mead and everything arranged. Um, so, yeah, they definitely would have uh, had lots and lots of feasts in in the in the chief's hall. Mm -hmm. Definitely, um, the food was cooked over a fire in the middle of the house, um, where the the meat was roasted. Um, they drank primarily ale and mead. Um, the ale would have would have been fairly weak because they would have drank it all day long. Obviously, the rivers at the times were quite polluted and stuff. So, really, from the moment they got up in the morning to the moment they went to bed at night, they drank ale. They deliberately made it quite weak because obviously, otherwise, yeah. they would have all been uh, drunk all the time. stumbling around. Yeah, which would have been quite fun, but not very productive, I suspect. So, their, their main strong alcohol they drank was mead. Um, obviously, it's made made of honey, and they would have drank it in great goblets and drinking horns. Um, as, as I said, touched on last week, while they were doing this, um, a minstrel would usually play harp and they would often be singing songs of battles and of heroes. Um, yeah, they, some, it's, it's worth mentioning some people did drink wine, um, but all of this was imported from the Mediterranean. Mm. So you would have had to have been a very, very wealthy, you know, one of the one of the kings of the um of the kingdoms of the seven kingdoms yeah, yeah. you'd have really had to be <laughs> them or are very fain to to afford such a thing so um you, you talked about the meat so what sort of meat did they eat uh and did that include game and uh you know fowl and fish etc yeah so the, the food that would have, the meat that would have been primarily eaten at the time was boar deer and pig um so 
pigs. They they obviously were very great farmers. The Anglo-Saxons were great farmers. Um, they farmed all the same animals that we farm today, um, but they they very much liked their their pork. What they with with um, beef and chickens and stuff they would use the they would use the cows and the chickens primarily more for you know like milk and eggs and then once they got old then they would kill them and they would eat the meat the meat whereas they used to farm pigs you know just just for the meat itself um other than that yeah they would they would have hunters in the village and they would go out and they would uh hunt boar and deer um so yeah those are the three meats um they also used to eat quite a lot of fish so you know, from all the, from the rivers and the seas, yeah. so quite a diverse lot of muddy fish. Yeah, m- m- obviously, yeah, from the rivers, but they they would um for the people that lived near the sea, for the people that lived near the sea, they would fish in the sea as well. Mm-hmm. So that would have probably been a a, a bit tastier. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's uh you know they, they really were quite good um you know farmers. They they um they cultivated lots of um, cereals and stuff. They they would have eaten bread with every single meal. Yeah. Um, they uh, farmed lots of wheat and rye, barley, um, oats. They ate lots of porridge, and they also used the oats to, as animal feed. Um, the vegetables that would have mainly been eaten at the time, obviously, there were no, you know, e- exotic. So they didn't have p- potatoes, tomatoes, bananas, pineapples. Um, they would have eaten carrots parsnips cabbages peas beans onions they would have made lots of like meat stews with um bar you know the, the leftover barley from the ale um and made lots of like you know healthy stews um i think i think um f- for our modern taste buds it, it's very worth mentioning that obviously they didn't have sugar at all in britain at the no. time um so they really relied on honey yes. and things like parsnips to sweeten everything so the Anglo-Saxons loved honey. They used to put <laughs> honey on everything. They really did. Um, so yeah, you can imagine. A, 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 you go to um, the you know you go to the uh, the hall in the evening. Um, there'd be a big fire in the in the middle, probably with um, probably with a pig on a, you know roasting, um, and you, your typical meal would yeah you'd probably have like a bowl of you know you'd have pork, carrots, parsnips. Sure. Cabbage, peas, beans, onions, and then you know they also often ate things like apples, cherries, plums. Um, can yeah, I... I think it's. Yeah, sorry. So can I overview at that point, please, Mr. Viking? So um, yeah, just for the viewers, I think. Um, so one of, one of the things they used to eat a lot of was peas pudding. So lot lots of very pea based uh, things. So they would love mushy peas and chips, I expect. Um, an interesting thing, in the same way they didn't have potatoes, the carrots, of course, weren't orange. Uh, the carrots, I believe, were either white or a sort of a purpley colour. I think that's right to say that. Um, and of course, the thing that's quite interesting, Callum, is, um, you know, you think about, uh, you know, the environmental issues we have today and people quite rightly being concerned about uh, greenhouse gases and pollution. Uh, so it's, I, I find it rather bizarre that, um, you know, uh, just to set the scene here now, I think this is quite interesting for people listening to our little show, Um People they estimate that around in around 400 AD the population of England was about four million, um, and but by the time the, of the Norman conquest in 1066, there weren't even two million people uh, in the country, um, and I think um, no one will ever know exactly for sure why that happened, but um, there are some reasons for that. So one of them would be 
um, there were uh, plagues and pestilence prevailing throughout the whole of Europe uh, throughout the period we're in today, which would have decimated the population. Uh, obviously, uh, the life expectancy uh, at this time was very poor. In fact, uh, the average Anglo-Saxon was expected to live for about 35 years. 48% of Anglo-Saxons didn't live beyond the age of 10. Uh, uh, so, so, so I believe. Um, and of course, once you got to a decent age, then I think if you got to 20, you know, you would you had a very, very, very good chance of getting to 40. And if you got to 30, you would almost certainly live to 50. And I've done a bit of uh, research on some of the more um, famous people of this period. You know, and you do get people living to 70, etc. And of course, if you look at our favourite, you know, our favourite little Anglo-Saxon Dane, Uthred of Bebenburg, um, he's still fighting uh, well into his late 50s, for instance. So he's well, he's definitely not not dead. I think it's, so. I think um, it would be reasonable to assume, and, and, and uh, disagree with me if, if I'm wrong in saying this. One of the reasons why the water would have been unsafe would have been their own ignorance. Um, so because they had the animals, um, basically, you know, with them so closely with them, uh, the animals would clearly have um, uh, done their business, shall we say, uh, and that would have polluted the, uh, the the water that was available to them. Um, and as you said, that meant pretty much that uh, it was very rare for people in this period to actually drink fresh water. And therefore, they, they had no choice but to to drink ale, which, of course, carried on right through um, right up until yeah. right until really the 19th century, I would say, um, you know, that that sort of that sort of thing. Um, one of the more gory things I've read about, which um, is very interesting, is. I think it's true to say that the average Anglo-Saxon had up to 100 tapeworms in their body. Um, and I've read about um, people with them coming out of their eyes and all sorts of other orifices. Um, and there was, I read a quote in, uh, an, I think in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's something about um, for every three calories that the Anglo-Saxon uh, ingested, it was two for the tapeworms and one for them. And so uh, it was very rare for uh, 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 an Anglo-Saxon of this period to be obese um, so they tended to be quite lean and mean and obviously probably not very well because um, they were uh, you know they were so blighted by these tapeworms etc uh, so disease disease was was quite rife uh, obviously they didn't have uh, any antibiotics or any anything really um, other than natural medicine. I think the other thing that's quite fun uh, I don't know how much you know about this is um you were talking about bread and how important it was. And, of course, it was probably the, um, the staple diet of the real poor people of this period. But they used to put some really, really funny things in it, you know, like hallucinogenic uh, things. Um, so you, you almost, like, had cannabis bread and, like, tripping bread. I don't, I don't know that they realised that's what they were doing, but because, uh, you know, they, they obviously used what was, what was available to them. Have you, have you any experience of that? Um, not, not particularly. I'm sure what they would have, I expect it was mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. I expect that well, they would like have. Things like bergamot um, and all sorts of, um, you know, the things that go, Glastonbury yeah. things you'd call them, you know. There are a lot, there are lots of, um, like, you know, spores and stuff that have a slightly hallucinogenic effect, obviously. Um, um, I'm sure like a lot of people listening will have heard of, um, you know, even if you find like antique books and you open them up, um, even the spores that, that grow on antique books on the paper, um, can can give you a mild hallucinogenic effect. Um, now, obviously, we know that um, 
it's more associated with um, Scandinavians, but um, Anglo-Saxons and and um, and the Norse people they did uh, partake in the taking of psilocybin mushrooms, which um, obviously some used to get them help get them into a berserker state. But I mean, these were people that they 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 worked hard, but they partied harder, you know. So. You know, we were talking about their their parties in the halls. They would have definitely, along with drinking their mead and and their ale, they would have um, had psilocybin mushrooms and stuff. And maybe you know, some um, some some clever little baker thought, oh, I'll put, I'll, I'll put a couple of these ingredients in the bread as well. Yeah, um, I, think- I, I I haven't read anything about that um, myself specifically, but I'm, I'm sure you're giving Drew some ideas. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, yeah. <laughs> next thing I'd like to, like you to talk about is the sort of way they structured their society and how they were ruled. I think it's um, you know uh, it's it's fair to say one of the reasons actually why, uh, without giving up too much away in, in future shows, one of the reasons why um, the Normans were able to um, fairly easily, without that many people, actually take over. Uh, England was it was incredibly well run administratively it was fantastic we had a, a brilliant uh, justice system uh, everything you know the administration system was perfect so tell us a little yeah. bit about that so how you know was how, was there were there local kings uh, was there a local lord um, you know how, how did the society sort of structure itself from bottom up yeah sure so yeah as you said Anglo-Saxon kings were prolific legislators um, and a number of law codes survived from the 7th right up to the 11th century. Um, the earliest laws have much in common with what we know as like continental Germanic law, including things like um, a personal injury tariff um, or compensation for various kind of bodily injuries, for example. Um, under 7th century Kentish, Kentish law, um, the sum of 12 shillings was payable for cutting off, off, off an ear, <laughs> 30 shillings for disabling somebody's shoulder, and 50 shillings for putting out an eye. Um, you know, so, as I said, they were really prolific legislators. Um, homicide required payment of, the we- of what was known as the Ware Guild, which translates to man price, um, a sum which varied according to social class, um, the Anglo-Saxon settlers had brought with them the Germanic system of blood feud, whereby the relatives of a murder victim could be expected to, to avenge them. Um, one of the aims of the early laws was to reduce the number of revenge killings by substituting a scale of financial compensation. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think we have this idea of them as being, you know, it was of being like almost like a completely lawless society. I think it's t- mm. tempting nowadays to see it like that. But really, it would have been quite similar to nowadays in terms of how they dealt with everyday <laughs> situations. You couldn't just go up to somebody who disliked and killed them and there'd be no repercussions. Mm. Um, as I said, you'd be heavily, heavily fined and punished just for... Um, you know, just for like injuring injuring somebody's shoulder, for example. You know, okay. um, the, the later Anglo-Saxon laws reflect the growing influence of the church, um, as for instance, uh, the introduction of fines or offences against um, uh, religious officials, and a preference for mutilation over the death penalty um, in order to give the offender time to repent, which is uh, nice. <laughs> Um, laws were also um, issued to enforce religious practices such as infant baptism, fasting, Sunday observance, um, and practical benefits can be seen in the granting of religious festivals as holidays, things like that. 
Yeah, I think it's um, important to say that laws on marriage were fiercely regulated um, to forbid unions between relatives um, or those connected with godparents. It was very frowned upon. Um, and whereas a woman who committed adultery during the seventh century would would be uh, would be penalised financially. Um, but later on, under Canute's law, um, a woman would have actually lost lost their nose or their well, ears. Yeah. They would have had to pick them for um, adultery, which is uh, obviously really quite brutal. As as seen in the scene in the Last Kingdom, I believe. Yeah. With, was her name Judith? I think her name was. Um, Judith. Yeah, she had her yeah. ear taken off. Yeah. So um, is that is that? Am I, am I, can I interject now, Mister Viking? Yeah. No. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I think it's worth pointing out just for the, that, uh, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, were a West Germanic people. Um, so the language they spoke, um, was, uh, it was, was proto-Germanic or West Germanic, depending on, uh, where you want to go. So, uh, various Germanic languages, uh, Norse, for instance, is also Germanic, but coming off a different part of the family, Whereas uh, German, for instance, High German, which became uh, the Einzweidrei German, um, comes from the same daddy language. Um, so I think it's, it's important. I, I find the language thing very interesting, and I've done um, quite a lot of research on this. As you know, I already, I already um, am able to uh, pronounce some words, you know, noticeably ship, S-C-I-P, and I think the most the most interesting thing with Anglo-Saxon, old, well, Old English, let's call it that, because it's better to call it Old English, is uh, when you actually see it written down, uh, it's often quite baffling. But when when it's actually spoken, you can you can understand much better um, where where the person's coming from. Uh, and I think it's I think it's true to say that uh, roughly forty eight percent of all the words in use today come from Old English. Um, and one of the things I find very fascinating, um, I've been fortunate in my life to, I could probably count to 100 in about 10 languages, I would say. Um, and, and of course, um, if, if you take uh, German, uh, the German for 12, for instance, is Zwelf, which is Z-W-E-L-F-L-E-L-F. Whereas, uh, whereas, for instance, an Anglo-Saxon uh, would say 12, T-W-E-L-F. Um, so it's it's um, I think it's you know it's quite fascinating how how language um, evolves, and so um, to be honest, you know, because uh, I've I've sort of taught myself a bit uh, to talk to a hundred in Welsh, for instance, in the last year, uh, and the 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 words for the you know the Welsh words like pedwar would be uh, one of the numbers. Obviously, it doesn't mean anything to to, to us at all in terms of. Uh, construction, you know, this, you know that 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 num that, that word has no uh, derivation in any language I've certainly ever ever been taught. Whereas if you look at um, Old English, so one for instance is an, uh, three is tria, uh, five is fief, six is six, uh, and then you get to twenty for instance, which is twentia, and you say an and twentia, twa and twentia three and twenty so i think i think what's what's very interesting about that is um i i, I mentioned it on a on a on a, a another um on another uh, live stream this morning and uh when i when i quoted that the people in in, in the audience that 
could speak German said oh it sounds that sounds like German um, and it, it does to a point and I think that the, the more relevant thing is it's more to do with the construction um, if, if any of you have got a little bit of time go and have a look at how for instance an Anglo-Saxon would say something like 6,541 it's absolutely extraordinary they couldn't just say um, so the Romans for instance would just write down probably you know four or five roman numerals to say that the anglo-saxon language was so cumbersome they actually had to say something like six thousand and five hundred and one and four lots of ten you know that's that's literally mm. what they sort of what they would have said you know and um, yeah. in terms of how they would speak so instead of saying um uh hello callum would you like to have a drink with me they would say, Callum, like to me drink. You know, the verb would go at the end. Um, I, I, so, you know, instead of saying Sally kicked the ball, they would say Sally the ball she kicked. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's uh, that's really, really interesting. So um, I think that's probably set the scene. I think it's enough on culture for today. Um, and then we're going to sort of move um, in, the, in the second half of the show sort of through... Uh, the geography of of the uh, time, and in particular, um, we're gonna, the exciting um, exciting bit about the, the Viking invasion. Uh, you know, and obviously, you and I both being a little bit Viking, it's quite quite exciting in our roots. So, um, just painting the scene. Um, so, the oldest English kingdom is Kent, um, and to start off, the Kent was the dominant. Um, powerhouse in um in the whole of england and very interestingly i know a, a, a character that you're uh, very keen on that you're going to talk about quite a lot later egbert um who who was obviously of course the grandfather of king alfred um egbert was actually supposed to be the son of uh, a kentish nobleman called uh, i think his name was el elman or something like that uh that sort of name um I must admit, I'm a bit confused as to how being the son of a Kent Kentish man got him to be the King of Wessex. But uh, we we might find that out next week. And if you don't know that today, if you could find that out for me, because I... no, I, I already know. I already know. Oh, that's that's fantastic. So we, we, if you we'll do that in context, we'll then jump around. So um, yeah. So Kent started the period as the, as a dominant kingdom, um, and um, and then over the period we're in it sort of declined in its influence not least because obviously it was quite a small kingdom um and then uh you know you had roughly speaking the angles in in east anglia um the saxons themselves of course were were in essex uh sussex and uh what we now call wessex um the dukes of course were in kent and um the mercians would have been uh, a sort of a, a combination but the saxons mainly as I say, we're in Essex, Sussex, and, and Wessex. So over, over the period um, after the Kentish domination, Mercia took over as the powerhouse uh, in, in, in England. Um, and certainly uh, in the period prior to the Viking invasion, uh, Mercia was a very large kingdom covering most of the north of England, a lot of the north of England, certainly the, the sort of North Midlands, whole of the Midlands, um, places like Gloucestershire even. Uh, Gloucestershire, Shropshire, these sort of places, Herefordshire, would all have been um, places in in Mercia. Of course, the, probably the dominant character of the period we're in today would have been Offa. Um, and it's, as I say, it's only really um, when we get to uh, the sort of early part of the ninth century where Wessex 
starts to take over. So, um, yeah, so what, what are your thoughts actually, on that then, Callum? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's important to note that um, you know Mercia and, and Wessex early on on the whole were pretty you know pr- pretty friendly with one another. It was always much more seen as um, sort of Mercia against Northumbria and stuff. But um, I mean Northumbria Mercia's um, fate was always sort of fluctuating because mm-hmm. it had so many borders with potential rivals. Mm-hmm. Um, to the north, Northumbria, you know, it's wet. To the west, it's the Welsh kingdoms, um, you know, traditional a- enemies of the Saxons. I mean, to its east, East Anglia, and to the south, Wessex, um, which were probably, over the whole course of, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon England, were, were the least aggressive towards Mercia. Um, Mercia was probably the, the kingdom that was most consistently at war mm-hmm. on the whole. Um would you like me to give you like just like a a, a little just brief synopsis of of uh, all the kingdoms just so everyone sort of gets an idea? Yeah, as long as it doesn't get in the way of our Viking bit, of course. No, of course. No, I just want to say so. Um, Northumbria, Northumbria was a region that stretched across the neck of northern England and covered much of the east coast and parts of Scot parts of modern modern Scotland. So it would have ended about where Edinburgh is today. Yeah. Um, but Edinburgh would have been within Northumbria. Yeah. Um, mo- modern York was at its southmost border. Um, it was formed in the seventh century upon the unification of Bernicia and Dera, um, the northern and southern parts of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, the kingdom was traditionally at odds with Mercia. Both consistently raided each other's lands and sometimes launched full-scale invasions. Um, as you said, Mercia was a large kingdom. Um, the most dominant up until Wessex really came into its own. Uh, Wessex was sort of seen as unstable but fertile country that covered most of the southwest. Mm-hmm. It was bordered by the Celtic kingdoms of Cornwall to the west, Mercia, its north, and Kent to the east. As was the mode of period, Wessex was constantly at odds with its neighbours and actually dwindled as Mercia began to take some of its lands before King Edward rose to power in the 8th century. Um, century. Its economy Sorry. and strength grew under Egbert with the acquisition of Surrey, Sussex, Kent, and Essex. Um, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there, so I'll, I'll leave that for, for later. The last big kingdom, obviously, is East Anglia, mm-hmm. um, which was the smallest of the kingdoms, but powerful during the reign of the Wuffingast dynasty. <laughs> um, by the end of the 8th century, however, it had been subdued by the more powerful Mercia, um, East Anglia briefly did reclaim their independence in the 9th century, but very swiftly after that were conquered by the Danish Vikings. Okay, so um, I think probably at that point, uh, I suppose it's, it's quite a, quite an irony in this, isn't there? Because um, uh, it'd, it'd be interesting to know whether the people at the time considered themselves to be sort of uh, settled English, if you like. Of course, there was no such thing as English, really, but... Um, you know, settled or whether they could see the irony that they themselves were invaders um, and that they they had only been in this country for uh, a comparatively short period of time. Well, you know, at the most probably 300 years by the time that the Viking um, incursions became quite uh, significant, shall we say. Because um, in many ways, the Vikings were simply doing nothing other than what the Anglo-Saxons did themselves. Um, yeah. So 
tell us a bit about why the Vikings came over, where they came from, what sort of people they were, how they were perceived, what their behaviour was like, and whether they um, whether they uh, deserve uh, quite the, the bloodthirsty sort of image and reputation they have today. Yeah, well, I think I think they do and they don't. I do think, um, as you said, it's um, massive to point out that um, they were no different than the Anglo-Saxons, really, the Vikings. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, culturally in terms of their DNA. I mean in terms of exactly their, their approach to, to Britain as a whole. Um, so uh, I, I know that nowadays, actually, some historians argue that the Anglo-Saxon Saxon invasion was maybe more brutal than than the Viking one. Now, that's obviously up for debate, and we spoke a little bit about that last week. And obviously, nobody knows for sure with the, with the current information. But um, the Vikings would have come from northern Denmark, um, Norway and Sweden. Um, you know, their lands were very, very harsh, hard to farm. Um, but, you know, they by the sort of the 8th century, the Vikings had made pretty good networks. Um, and they were used to trading with, you know, everyone from the Mediterranean, you know, back and forth. So they were aware of Britain, but they'd never really, they'd never really landed there before. And obviously, it's all good and good and well saying they knew about Britain, but that doesn't mean that, you know, some some chap that built a boat in Norway would necessarily know how to get to to England, you know. Um, but I think it's what's interesting is is most people think of the first account of. Um, the Vikings coming to uh, Britain as Lindisfarne, but um, apparently that's actually not the case. Um, the first account of a Viking raid in Anglo-Saxon England comes in from 787 AD, when three ships from what at the time was called Hordaland, which is in modern-day Norway, landed in the Isle of Portland on the southern coast of Wessex. Mm-hmm. They were approached by a thane called Bierdeherd, um, who was the royal reeve from Dorchester, whose job it was to identify all foreign merchants entering the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So when it when he approached them, they simply just killed him. There yeah. was no no chatting or talking about it. They just killed him, um, and they think that between then and Linda's farm, um, it is likely that there were other raids. You know, a lot of records obviously have been lost, yeah. so it's hard to know for certain. Um, we do know that soon afterwards, in seven nine two, King Offer of Mercia began to make arrangements for the defense of Kent um, from raids perpetrated by what he described as pagan peoples. So I think it's safe to say that Vikings were already making um, a name for themselves before the 793 AD um, famous attack on Lindisfarne. Yeah, it's interesting. So the the Vikings um, primarily came from two countries, didn't they? Denmark and Norway. Although, interestingly, for such a small country, I believe uh, the Danish influence was greater. Is that right? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, as, as you see in in shows like um, The Last Kingdom, and obviously, I'm not saying that you know The Last Kingdom. You should we should watch something <laughs> like that for all of your historical knowledge because things are obviously glammed up a little bit. Um, but you know, the history is loosely pretty co- correct. So, I mean, the the Anglo Saxons would have referred to them um, the Northmen as Danes the most of the time because that's what what they were. You did have a lot of Nor- um, people from Norway, obviously, as I mentioned, those those people that killed that Saxon thane when they, they came mm. to Wessex shores. They were from modern-day Norway, but they were l- largely known as the Danes. And as we know, um, as, as uh, people with a lot of Manx blood, it was the Danes that settled the Isle of Man. And I actually think it's really interesting t- to mention um, 
and I don't think this this point is um, often got across. Um, but Anglo, um, the Isle of Man is actually by far the best place to find Viking archaeology on the whole of the British Isles. Okay, by far, both in terms of quantity, um, quality. Yeah. So and you know, but it's it's mainly yeah Danish. Okay. Yeah. So no um, no Swedes. That's, that's that's interesting. So I wonder what the Swedish were up doing. I think they. Made... No, no. The... I, I, apparently there, there were Swedes. It's funny because you don't hear much account. I think no, probably, but probably because the the Anglo-Saxons wouldn't have known the difference between a Swedish person and a Norwegian person, as probably neither did the Norwegian and Swedish people most of the time. <laughs> but um, we do know that there are there's a group of thirty rune stones that was found in Sweden, uh-huh. um, which refer to the Viking Age voyages in England. Um, they constitute one of the largest groups of rune stones. Um, in the world, um, and they are comparable in number only to the approximately thirty, you know, Greek runestone collections, for example. Um, but yeah, th- these thirty runestones that were found in Sweden, um, r- you know, refer directly to the the, um, the voyages and the invasions of England. So we know that Swedish people did go there, and they returned to Sweden afterwards, and they they writ down the tales of of what happened there. So did the um, did the Viking, let's call it the Viking immigration, did it follow the same sort of pattern as the previous Anglo-Saxon one with uh, warriors first followed by settlers, or or was it was it rather different? Yeah, yeah, it, it would have it would have been like that. I think it's worth mentioning that the Viking invasion was obviously nowhere near as smooth as the Anglo-Saxon invasion. The Anglo-Saxons pretty much moved in and said, "Like, I'm, I'm the daddy here. Yeah. You know, there's a new daddy, there's a new sheriff in town." Yep. Um, whereas, yeah, you know, the Vikings, they sort of picked, picked around the, the coast, um, around where from the, from the uh, south coast to the sort of the northeast coast, you know, everywhere really. They sort of picked away little invasions here and there. Um, they often targeted um, Christian sites. I think it's worth mentioning, you know, I think sometimes um, uh, the the Vikings were almost seen as like anti-Christian. Yes. They they didn't they, they could care less about Christianity. The only <laughs> reason that they they uh, they targeted these sites is because they were undefended. They didn't specifically do it to be like you know devil worshipping anti-Christian mm. folk. Yeah, it was, it was purely. Sorry. No, I think I think it's worth pointing out that. Um... Uh, it's interesting because the Anglo-Saxons, of course, themselves uh, originally had exactly the same beliefs with no difference whatsoever. The gods were exactly the same gods. The superstitions were the same superstitions. Probably the songs they sang um, uh, and the sagas would have been very similar or the same sagas. And, of course, what happened um, over over the period we're in today is the, uh, the indigenous Anglo-Saxons became largely a Christian uh, people. Uh, which set them in very stark contrast to uh, the invading, let's call them Vikings for convenience now. And certainly in the Anglo-Saxon chronicles and in the in the writings available of the day, uh, the, the Anglo-Saxons themselves very much saw uh, themselves as the civilised Christians fighting against these sort of um, terrible, um, horrible uh, pagans uh, and and it was sort of incumbent upon them to uphold uh, God's God's law, sort of thing. And I think the, the the Vikings quite rightly just sort of laughed at them and 
obviously believed in their own gods and and as you say they opportunistically you know the church has always been very good at building up wealth uh they have disproportionate wealth and so they were the obvious place to attack to get the wealth so anyway um so in in in, in our remaining slot for today i think we've got about 15 minutes to go um be good to talk about um, the areas of England that the Vikings... Well, not just England, of course, because the Vikings are still uh, highly uh, influential in places, as you say, the Isle of Man, Orkney, um, and, of course, later on, later on uh, Ireland, uh, arguably the, 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 the capital of Viking Europe was Dublin, um, certainly by the time we get to the 9th century. So mm-hmm. tell us a bit about... Um, which parts of England in particular that the Vikings settled in and, and how their how they settled, how it expanded and, and, and how their land was referred to at the time. Yeah, sure. Um just quickly before I get into that, I do, you know, really want to hammer in that point you made about how similar the Viking people were to the Anglo Saxon people, sort of only like a hundred or two hundred years before the Vikings came. It's it's um I mean th- Christianity at the time, um, not to be rude, was um, very, very pompous, <laughs> you know, and it had a, it was it was so um, fear based. I mean, the only reason that these these monasteries and stuff weren't defended was because people were brought up to be so afraid of God that, you know, nobody would dare ever take a gold coin from a, a monastery or something like that, because, you know, they would be told, you know, read verses from the Bible <laughs> talking about, you know, Damnation. Abaddon, the angel yeah. of death coming to flay them alive or whatever, and that would be enough to turn you off, wouldn't it? Yeah. But um, whereas the Vikings, obviously, as you said, just laughed at that. They, they believed in their own gods. They thought that the Christian attitude was, was very silly. Um, and probably, I suppose a lot of them actually thought it was quite brutal, which is funny considering um, how people perceived them. Mm. But yeah, so the, the Vikings um, raided Lindisfarne. Other, other noteworthy places that they raided was um, Iona in Scotland, Iona Abbey off Scotland's west coast. It was attacked several times, 802 AD, 806, 68 um, people were killed. Um, the devastation was so bad um, that the community at Iona abandoned the site and actually fled to Kells in Ireland. Um, in the first decade of the 9th century, Vikings raiders started to attack um, the coastal districts of Ireland. By this point, the Danes had um, pretty much taken over the Isle of Man. Uh-huh. I think it's important to note, though, that there was... Um, the invasion of the Isle of Man, it wasn't, it wasn't, I want to say it wasn't brutal. There would have been a lot of men that were killed, mm. but the Viking men all married all Manx women. Mm. It's not like they brought their women with them and they all suddenly made it as Viking Isle. So the, the Isle of Man, to this day, they very much can see themselves as sort of like a, a Viking Gaelic people. And, yeah. it, it, the, and uh, you see that very much in um, their society. Um, so I've been to the um, Manx History Museum mm. several times, and they've actually got a very, very good exhibit on the on the um, the Viking era um, that talks about how um, you know how w- men obviously would have been out hunting and fighting and stuff like that, and women would have brought up the children, learning both you know Manx and Danish, Manx Gaelic and Danish, and the, the language to a certain extent did intertwine, and they would have taught them about the Manx um, history. And stuff like that. Mm. But then obviously the father would have came home in the evening and would have told them all the sagas and the stories that they would have grown up with in, in Denmark. So it wasn't quite, it wasn't like savagely brutal. Mm. Um, 
I think um, getting back to the point, um, sort of the invasion really started to take place in sort of about 865, 896 AD. Um, the, the Norse attitude towards the British Isles changed from sort of like a pillaging mindset um, for, uh, to a place of potential colonisation. Um, as a result, large armies began to arrive on Britain's shores as opposed to sort of pirate bands. Um, obviously, Norse armies captured York, which was the major city, York kingdom Hick. of North Korea. They captured that in uh, 866. Um, counterattacks concluded in a decisive defeat for Anglo-Saxon forces at York on the 21st of March in 867. Um, and the deaths of Northumbrian leaders Ada and Osbert took place. Um, other Anglo-Saxon kings began to cap capitulate to the Viking demands and surrendered land to the North settlers. Uh, many areas in eastern and northern England, including all but the northernmost parts of Northumbria, came under the direct rule of Viking leaders or puppet kings. Yes, I think... Um... Uh, eventually we end up with um, a very large part of England referred to as the Dane law. Um, so Mercia was basically cut in half. Uh, I think it was called the five kingdoms. Um, I can't remember that. I think it's Leicester, Stanford, uh, Derby, and two other towns. I can't remember today because I should have done my homework better. But um, so I think, <laughs> I think um, yeah, I say Mercia, uh, saw about half of its land taken by the Dane law. Uh, so yeah. you effectively almost had the original uh, north-south divide. Uh, and that actually very much has continued to today. Um, so if you think about, um, I think of a good a good um, example, um, probably one of the greatest rugby league players of all time was a guy called Paul Sculthorpe. Uh, Sculthorpe is a is a is a is a viking name for instance you know um so if you look at the if you look at the place names in the north they are almost uh almost predominantly viking based names the people are more viking based and you can see actually a slight difference in 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 uh genetic makeup i think profile um of course you only get people like you and me who are basically like neither one thing nor the other we're like you know all sorts uh you know so i i've i've got i think every every single part of dna from a british person you could have so you know we're able to cross over Interestingly, what what surprised you was um you actually had a, um, a dna test didn't you a couple of years back hmm. and what you were surprised to hear was actually predominantly you did actually have norse dna didn't you well, I had only eight percent English DNA. That was uh, the most interesting thing. Yeah, what was it? It was almost it was almost like seventy percent Norse or something, wasn't it? Something quite crazy, like well, really, like well, they obviously don't know where North European is. Uh, you know, is, yeah. Is, so, um, you know, but it insinuates obviously, sort of. You think you you obviously what comes to mind is is Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, no, doesn't I it? I don't, uh, I don't think it was seventy percent. If, if I remember rightly, it was um, something like thirty odd percent. Scando and thirty mm. percent um, Gaelicy. Uh, That's yeah. So I, was, I think it might be like forty percent Viking, thirty percent. I yeah. remember thinking it was predominantly. Yeah, so I'm, 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 you know, according to the DNA test, I'm essentially a, a, a sort of a Viking Gale, uh, much more. I think, yeah. I think it's, I think it's important to mention though that very, very much British. By by, obviously, the time you get to the the end of the Viking era, anyway, 
you're very, very much a British person. You don't really um, go out of those shores much, do you? You're either um, Norse, um, Gaelic, which is obviously, you know, people associate more with places like Ireland, the Isle, the Isle of Man and stuff, but very much Gaelic, Norse, with some Anglo-Saxon, with some ancient Britain, which is very obviously relevant to our, our show. Yeah, I think, um, you know, sort of building for the future, of course, this whole eight-part series uh, builds right up to that cataclysmic sea change in English and British history when we have the Norman Conquest. And, of course, you know, one of the things that's fascinating, which I'm really looking forward to talking to you about, is is actually predominantly the, the perception uh, of people in history about what happened there is fundamentally wrong. Because that whole battle eventually, uh, essentially, was won between uh, Viking-dominated peoples against Viking-dominated peoples, and of course, you know what mm-hmm. what what happens uh, very much through the period we're in, and certainly coming out the other side is that you know, you, you start to get this concept of Englishness uh, as opposed to "Hello, I'm a Saxon, you're a Dane." Uh, people start to to sort of work together. Um, but of course, um, bringing bringing today's show to an end, we um, so we've got a situation effectively where uh, the Vikings have come, uh, they're powerful. Um, we haven't really mentioned uh, the appeasement policy, the first Neville Chamberlain of of England. Um, so the 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 incumbent kings uh, used to um, to pay them tribute, which was called Danegeld. Um, so basically, it was like we'll give you all our money if you bloody well leave us alone. You please, yeah. Uh, sure. And of course, the Vikings would take all the money, and then a year later, they come back, go sucker, uh, sail back up, yeah. sail back up the river, and do it all over again. Um, which just goes to show that you know, giving in to, to to blackmail and 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 that sort of thing is never a very good recipe. So we end no. up in a situation where the Vikings are. Um, certainly by say uh 870 looking quite pretty uh they're sitting there dominating uh half half of what's england today i would say um and you've got the mercy influence uh retreating i know you wanted to talk a little bit about egbert so um yeah, just sure. very quickly if you could just do uh because most people listening to this won't know who egbert is um yeah, so sure. If you could just do a, a two, a two or three minute little summary about the importance of King Egbert, please, Callum. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I know that obviously the show Vikings has become very popular. So the King Egbert that we're talking about now is is the same King Egbert from the show. So as I was saying about the Last Kingdom earlier, it, it, it's a good base for learning your history. But um, you know, take into account that everything's glammed up a little bit. Um, but the, the King Egbert that they show. In, in the program is very much the King Egbert of history. Um, he, what you were saying a, a second ago about how, you know, the attitude that of, to the Vikings of, you know, pay them some money, hope they go away, was really absolutely rubbish. Because as you said, they would just come back a year later and, um, and um, slaughter everyone and then ask for some more money. But I think King Egbert was undoubtedly a very, very strong man, a very powerful man. Um, it, he was the grandfather of King Alfred the Great, mm-hmm. and there is no doubt that King Alfred wouldn't have been the man he was without his grandfather, and he'd certainly had a lot of his grandfather in him. Mm. Um, by the time um, of Egbert's death, he was actually he he was written it was written that by his enemies that he was king of all Britain. So that just goes to show you what his enemies actually thought of him. Of I mean, these are from direct. 
yeah, these are from just direct historical accounts. But a real quick rundown. Um, he was born in Kent. Um, and when uh, King Beatrich of Wessex died in 802, he basically said, I want to be king of, yeah. of, of Wessex. My, my ancestors were the richest and the most successful kings of Wessex, even though I was born a Kentish man. Mm -hmm. So I think that I, I uh, have the best claim. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Mercians, though, supported an another man um, and basically said, Egbert, you better get lost or we're going to kill you. <laughs> so Egbert went into exile and actually lived with Charlemagne. Um, for for um, many years, um, Charlemagne supported Egbert, um, but basically not enough to intervene on his side militarily. Um, but uh, anyway, Egbert returned from exile um, and became king of Wessex when the the Mercian supported king died. Um, he then, in 825, um, won a decisive victory over King Bjornwulf yep. of Mercia, Ellendon. Yep. Um, this is when Wessex became the dominant kingdom yep. um, and pretty much were due onwards from that. Following his conquest of Mercia, Egbert controlled all of England south of the Humber. Um, in 829, Egbert defeats the Northumbrian king at Dore near Sheffield. In 830 AD, Wiglif of Mercia revolts, um, but Egbert subdued him. In 830 AD, Egbert subdued all of northern Wales um, and was recognised by the Welsh as the overlord of England. The North Welsh. Um, yeah. yeah. In 836, Egbert suffered his only major defeat. Um, actually took place in Somerset, which is obviously relevant for us. For anybody li listening that's not aware, we are Somerset people. <laughs> so Egbert was defeated by the Danes at Carhampton in Somerset, which was a big blow for him at the time, and a lot of his army was destroyed. But um, he made a big comeback in 838, um, the Cornish made an alliance with um, the Danes mm. and a huge Cornish and Viking army came up um, from um, the southwest. But Egbert def completely defeated the whole um, Cornish Viking army and basically sent them, sent them running back to Cornwall. Um, just a year later, uh, Egbert died and was succeeded by his son, Ethelwolf. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, the most um, relevant thing for us, you know, what we were saying about, you know, when the Danes invaded uh, what is modern day Carhampton, it was called um, Charmouth at the time. Mm. Uh, they um, they had a fleet of 36 ships. Um, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle entry for that year states how a great slaughter was made there and the Danes remained masters of the field, indicating a significant victory for the Viking raiders. So it really was a blow to Egbert at the time, but it, sh yeah. it, it shows the ca his character that completely unfazed. It, within a year, he had completely reasserted his dominance. Okay. I think, um, yeah, so it was, it was nice to see the passion for the character there. Um, so wrapping up to today, I think we're in the final minutes now. So um, I think, uh, so, you know, what we've, we've, we've seen es Wessex emerge as the powerhouse uh, of, of England but in, in highly troubled and difficult times. Um, and by the time we get to uh, 878, which is where we're going to start uh, next week's show, um, uh, we have a situation where the, the English, if, if they exist, are in complete disarray. Um, and where we're going to leave you today is um, King Alfred becomes the King of Wessex. Um, we're doing a, a complete whole special on King Alfred next week. So... We'll t you have to wait till next week to find out everything about him. 
Um, so for today, we're just going to set the scene. Um, so King Alfred has become the King of Wessex, um, and uh, his early his early uh, reign was to say troubled would be uh, an understatement. And certainly by the time uh, we get to the end of today's show, uh, Wessex's prospects of triumphing would have been as bad as England's in the Second World War, I would say. I think that would be a good comparison. Um, and so by 878, we have uh, the, ar- the, the, the Wessex army is in complete disarray. Um, the whole of the structure... Um, of of Wessex has disappeared. All the other kingdoms don't exist because they've been subjugated by by the Danes, and uh, Alfred himself has to retreat to the marshes of Somerset, which I'm very I'm very very proud about, um, centering around a, a place called Athelney. And of course, because in those days Somerset was so largely underwater, uh, people would travel around pr- principally on coracles, etc. And uh, it was very, very easy uh, to hide. So, so Alfred, uh, with an unknown number of retainers, retreated to Athelney, and um, and basically sat there uh, and and just hoped. It'd be interesting to know. You know, there's no nobody will ever know uh, whether he he actually thought realistically he was going to be able to to triumph. Um, so we end today um, with with Alfred in. Uh, Athelney burning the cakes, or did he? Uh, Eng- the, the, the prospect of England as a, a nation is in tatters. Uh, it looks almost certain that Vikings are going to win uh, and that today's show would have been talked to you in Norse. But we'll see what actually happened, won't we, Callum? Well, I have to say, um, it's a really good job. Um, it's always fascinating to listen to uh, the vast knowledge you have of your subject and um it's lovely to see the passion um that comes out when you're talking about things you really believe in so uh thank you very much callum um so i think it would is a, a really good tour of uh the period from 600 up to 878 um we hope you liked it listeners um we've we've basically uh, got really good theme music today as you'll see so i hope you really like it uh, it's called Blood Swan, and uh, I think it's it's quite relevant uh, for the period. So until next time, when we see the fight back of the English and the true emergence of us as a nation, have a great week. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Bye.